Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to 3 John. Just finished up 1 John last week and go a couple books beyond that. And we're going to read the first few verses of the third letter of John as you're able. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for your word, which is truth. And now, will you help us not to be distracted by things today, but to hear from you, from your word? And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Be seated. Well, what does it mean to be walking in the truth? I want to share that with you today. And and to do that, I want to take you back to the first church that I... I served uh, back in 1980. I was called to be an assistant pastor of a church in, uh, in Penn Hills, Pennsylvania, a suburb of, of Pittsburgh. And uh, while I was there, I went through uh, training to learn how to, to share my faith and uh, then went on to some more uh, training so that I could teach others how to do that. Uh, We would go out weekly, and way back then, it was a long time ago, things were different, uh, we would show up at the homes of uh, people who had visited the church, show up unannounced, and knock on their door and say, hey, thanks for visiting with us. uh, and basically try to figure out a way to get in, in the home. And most people were pretty gracious. And, and then when we, uh, we would go out uh, in the morning, like Tuesday morning, and then also Tuesday night. So if we ran out of visitors from that week, because different teams would go out, then we would start going door to door and knocking on doors. And... Uh, if you've never had a door slammed in your face, it's a humbling experience, uh, but, but it, it was okay. And most people even then were very gracious. Uh, uh, one morning I was even offered a drink in the middle of the morning. Uh, so. <laughs> so anyway, a lot of experiences to tell about that. 
Um, I learned an outline that I'm going to share with you today. Now, I didn't come up with this outline. It was formulated by uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy. Uh, but I've never found a better one. And so through the years, I have shared this literally with, with hundreds of people because I would, uh, I, I, at every membership class in all the churches that I served, I would share this with people. And when people would come into my office or I would see their, them in their homes, if I had the opportunity to share this, I, I would. And, and the, the reason I keep sharing is, is because it answers the most important question in the world. And I think it does it in, in a clear way. There's actually two questions that it answers. The first one is, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, do you know for sure that you would go to heaven? Now, none of you are planning on that. Neither am I. But I literally have had times in my ministry when uh, one time we had an evening uh, service and there was uh, uh, someone who was in the morning worship, and before that evening, uh, she was in a car wreck, and she was with the Lord, uh, and she would have been there that evening. We don't plan on those things, and yet, none of us really knows when, when that will take place. So that, that question, do you know for certain you, you would go to heaven? Well, some say yes, some say no, many say, I'm not really sure, and some say, I'm not sure anyone can really know that. Those are, those are basically four answers that are common in answering that. Well, we've, we just spent 19 weeks on 1 John and the, the point of 1 John is that we can know if indeed we will go to heaven. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So there is an answer where you... You can know for certain. So that brings us to the second question. That's the one that I'm, I'm calling really the, the most important question in the world. It's the key. If you were to die today or tonight and stand before God, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Think about that in your head. What, what would you say? Well, some might say, well, because I'm a member of a church, or I've been baptized, or I, I teach Sunday school, or I try to be a good husband or wife, or I try to be an obedient 
child. When I was a teenager, if somebody had asked me that question, I would have said, well, you know, my parents are Christians. I guess I am too. I guess that's why I should get into heaven. And of course, none of, none of those answers are sufficient. There's lots of answers. But the only one that, that matters is the one that is acceptable to God. What do you, what do you need to say to him and to really believe? Because it doesn't matter what you say. You've got to really believe it in your heart so that he would say, come in, my child. Yes, come in. Well, as always, let's start with grace. Heaven is a free gift. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we tend to be cynical about anything that's free, don't we? Now, we, we, my children are, are up here, and uh, when the, uh, they were growing up, uh, once in a while, one of them would go to uh, the mailbox and uh, get the mail and, and come back and say, we won, Dad. <laughs> or, there's a free gift in here. And so, like a good father, I would just burst their bubble. (laughs) And I would try to gently explain, you know, I know it says free gift, but it's not really free. Let me show you. And then I would show them the strings that were attached. So we, we tend to get cynical about it don't we? You, you, go on an, you go on an airplane and uh, they, you know, they come on and they say, today you will get complimentary, meaning free, uh, drinks and pretzels. And every time I hear that, I think, I have just paid $450 for <laughs> There is nothing free about that, you know, those 16 pretzels that you're about to give me. So we get cynical. And yet, when God says it's a free gift, it really is is free. And it has to be. It's not earned or deserved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not uh, your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, if all, any of those answers I gave you earlier about why we should get in, you know, membership and, and things like that, if any of those worked, then we would boast. We'd be pretty proud of ourselves for getting into heaven. So let's talk about what the scripture says about man. Man is a sinner. For all, according to Romans 3.23, for all, no exceptions, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, 
those that study this kind of thing say that we forget as much as 99% of the bad things that, that we do. Every time I say that, I think, well, that doesn't bode well for me because I can think of a lot of bad things that I've done. And I don't know about you, but forgetting all of those things. Then on top of that, Jesus told us that it's not just the outward sin that we do that actually counts as sin. But if we so much as think an evil thought, that's a sin as well. We're guilty of sin. Now, some psychologists uh, say that, that we can have as many as 10,000 thoughts in a day. I know some of you probably have more thoughts than that. And yeah, some of you have less thoughts than that too. <laughs> but let's pretend like it's 10,000 thoughts. If out of all of those thoughts, you only had 100 bad thoughts during the day, 100 out of 10,000, or let's... Let's say you were really, really good, and you only had 10 bad thoughts out of those. Or let's say three. Three evil thoughts out of 10,000. You'd be practically a saint, wouldn't you? And yet, you multiply that by the days of the year, you've got over a thousand, and uh, if you live to be 80 or 90, you got 80 or 90,000 sins. What if you went in front of a judge and said, Your Honor, I've only broken the law 80,000 times? <laughs> well, he would lock you up and throw away the key, rightfully so. And so, there we are. And on top of that, Jesus says, here's the standard. Even three would not be uh, sufficient because he said in uh, Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So man cannot save himself. When I was in high school, I took a class, I'm sure it's not around any longer, but it was called Contemporary Living for Men. And in that class, they taught you how to sew on a button and iron a shirt. Uh, I think that was the last button and iron shirt I've, I've done since that class. But the reason, the reason I took the class was because they also taught you how to cook and then you got to eat in the middle of the morning and all high school guys are always hungry so there was always a waiting list for that class. Now, uh, they taught us, they, the idea was to, to teach you to um, cook something practical like that you might actually make if you are on your own. And so one of the things they taught us how to make was an omelet. And the teacher 
this was one thing I still remember uh, that she, she taught us. She said, uh, you know, it's four eggs or however many, and, and they need to go in this bowl, but don't crack them right in the bowl. Uh, crack them in this cup over here, one at a time, and then put them in the bowl. Because then if you have a bad egg, um, you know, it won't mess up all of the eggs. Now, that's, that's just common knowledge for cooking, and I did that. I did that for many, many years. And then there was a Christmas morning, and Connie and I loved to make a big breakfast on Christmas morning uh, for the whole family, and, you know, we'll open gifts or, and, and then make a big breakfast and so on, and it was my duty to make the scrambled eggs. And because I was breaking so many of them, uh, I thought, well, I've never seen a bad egg, so I, yeah, you, you know what's coming here. So I began cracking them in, in the bowl. All was well for about the first 10, and then I saw my first bad egg. Now, I was in a dilemma. What do you do? Well, you can either uh, try to get it out, which wouldn't have worked with that bad egg, or kind of mix it in and put in more eggs so it dilutes it and so on. But I, I, I was smart enough to, to think, you know what, my children would be suspicious and say, Dad, why aren't you eating any eggs today? <laughs> so I appealed to Connie. I said, Connie, oh no, look, I messed up. And fortunately, she had lots more eggs. It all was well. Here's the point. It was just that one egg in the whole batch, and it ruined the whole thing. That's what God tells us. That's how sin works. If you, even, if you even sin one time, you cannot meet the standard of perfection. You cannot save yourself. Proverbs 14 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, and the end thereof is death. So now, what do we know about God? Well, if you took a survey in your neighborhood, or if I did in my neighborhood, and, and you said, what is God? Almost everyone would say, God is love. He is. He's loving and merciful. But, but where do you learn that? You don't learn it by looking around. You don't learn it certainly by watching the news in our day. If you were trying to figure out God by looking at what goes on in our world, you would not conclude God is love. The only place we learn that is in the Bible. And it is on every page of the Bible that God is love, loving and, and merciful. Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. But on every other page of the Bible... It also says God is just. Exodus 34, 7. I will by no means clear the guilty. So how do these two, uh, how do they 
fit together. How are we to understand them? How are we to understand God? Well, that's where Christ comes in. First of all, who he is. Jesus is the eternal God-man. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 explains who that Word is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We often hear about Thomas. And uh, what, what's Thomas's other name? Doubting Thomas, right? And by the way, I am convinced that in heaven they're not calling him Doubting Thomas. And the reality, when you look at his account, he didn't have any more doubts than I would have had and probably most of us. But, but here's why they call him that. So Jesus walks out of the tomb. He's resurrected. And he meets with his his disciples, and Thomas is not there. I, I thought they should have come up with another name like Late Thomas or something like that. He just wasn't with, with any them there. And, and so when they saw Thomas, they said, he's alive. Jesus is alive. And Thomas said, you know what, I'll, I'll believe that if I can See the wounds in his hand and his side. Thrust my hand in his side. Then I'll believe it. Well, about a week later, Jesus appears before Thomas. And Thomas did not say, come over here, let me put my hand in your side. He said, my Lord and my God. Here, here is Thomas that had no problem knowing that Jesus was fully man. He lived with him. He saw him every day. He knew he was man, but here he's professing, you are not just a man, you are God. And by the way, if Jesus wasn't God, that would have been the perfect place for Jesus to say, oh, no, 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 you've misunderstood. But he accepted that worship. He's the eternal God man. So what did Jesus do? Well, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and make a way to heaven for us. Now, pretend for a minute that this is a, a hymn book, okay? Pretend that uh, here I am, and in this book, it's not a hymn book, but it's got all of the sins that I've committed in this book, and, and they are, they're on me. All of my sins are on me. I'm responsible for them. You know, we, we often use Isaiah uh, 53. It, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So here I am with all my sins on me, and here is Jesus. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. They were on me, 
and on the cross, they're on him. That's what Jesus did. He died on the cross to take away our sin. That takes us back to grace. And if, if you're following along in the outline, you see that I've, I've spread out the, the letters of grace. That's so you can write a definition that I think is a good one, a good brief definition after those words. Make it an acrostic, G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. Say that with me. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's such a good definition and a good way to remember what he did for us. This time of year with Easter coming, we often think about uh, what happened on the cross and, and even the, the seven last words of Jesus on the cross. One of those words, and these some of them were phrases, but one of them we usually translate, it is finished. Well, you see the word there, tetelestai. That's the word that Jesus actually uttered on the cross that is usually translated, it is finished. But that's actually, in that day, it was a commercial term. It, it was one that, that they would use when a bill was paid. You know how we used to do it? Or we would you know, be happy when we saw them stamp a bill paid in full. That's what that meant. To tell us, die. So when Jesus is on the cross and he is, he is shouting or uttering these last words, they hear, it is paid in full. What was paid in full was, was the penalty for our sin. Now, how do we receive that? That salvation. Well, think about keys. Yesterday I was here and I, I started taking the, the keys off my keychain, turned them in, you know. And, and I had six keys that had to do with the church. I now only have like two keys. Uh, uh, and even the six, I often, people would say, can you get into this room? And I'd say, no, they don't give me a key to that. But... But suppose I said, um, here, here's my, my keys. Would you get something out of my office? I toss it to somebody. They'd look at it, and, and you know, all those keys, they actually look all the same. They're the same color, and I, I, I labeled what they were because I had to put colored things on them so I could remember. But you know what? There was, there's only one key that would go to my office. And there's all these others that look kind of like it, but they wouldn't get you in there. Well, that's, that's how we are to understand faith. Faith is the key to heaven. But there are some things that, that it's, it's not. It's not mere intellectual assent. It's not just head knowledge. Uh, it. You know what, everything that I've said so far, 
Satan actually believes everything that I've said so far. The, the scripture in James 2.19 says, you believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. So for Satan, though, it's, it's an intellectual knowledge. He's not going to be in heaven. But he believes, he knows all of these things are true. So it's not an intellectual assent, and neither is it a mere temporary faith. Uh, that would be like when you're sick, and then during that time you pray to God, and then you get better and you quit praying. Or, or uh, the, the old thing is the, the foxhole faith, for those of you that have been in war, about those who believe when the bullets are whizzing over their heads. And then they leave the foxhole and they forget all about it. That's, that's a temporary faith. It can be genuine, but it, it's temporary because of the circumstance. Or when you go on an airplane, everybody prays, right? <laughs> I do, anyway. And then you land and some people forget about God. That's a temporary faith. So if it's not intellectual assent, it's not a temporary faith, what is it? It is Trusting Jesus Christ alone for our eternal life. Trusting him alone for our eternal life. Ephesians 2, 9. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Not just believe about him, believe in him. Back in 1860 there was a, a tightrope artist. His name was Blondin. And he was actually the, the first uh, tightrope artist to walk across the Niagara Falls Gorge, a thousand feet, 260 feet above the water. And he, he did it, and for him, it, it was, you know, it, it got to be so routine that he had to kind of spice it up. And there's all kinds of stories of things he did on, on uh, the tightrope and so on. And one of the things that he did, as the story goes, is he took a wheelbarrow and he went across the falls and came back. And everybody, you know, the crowd is going crazy. London, yeah. And then he said, how many of you think I can put a man in this wheelbarrow and go across? And of course, the crowd in their intellectual ascent said, yes, you can do it. And then he said, will you be the man? <laughs> Who will be the man? That's the difference between intellectual assent and trusting and that's the difference for us as well in, in the book of Acts Acts chapter 2 there's this magnificent sermon and at the end of that sermon those that were listening said what shall we do what, what's our response to this they had heard the gospel of Christ what do we do? And that's what we have to answer now. 
what we do is we transfer our trust from ourselves to Christ. Transfer our trust. Receive him as the resurrected and living Christ as Lord and Savior and repent of our sins. That is trusting in Christ alone. And that's salvation. So back to our question. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? The answer doesn't have to be these words. But this is what must be in your heart. I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my eternal life. If you believe that, if you really believe it, that will determine your eternity. And then you will walk in the truth. And that's the most important thing. And nothing would be a greater joy than to hear that you are walking in the truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you did not make this some kind of a mystery for us to figure out. You laid it out. You made it clear. And Lord, Will you today enable, enable those you're calling to respond? And for those that are already your, your children, will you help them again today to rejoice in the glory of the gospel and to love you even more? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.